My friends, this morning back to Ephesians chapter 2. If you'll take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at was originally intended to be part of the sermon from last time, but I thought that there was too much to say last time about what it meant to be a fellow citizen with the saints, that I decided to make this a separate sermon. So you never know what you're going to get when we go through Ephesians. Uh, you're going to get the Word of God. <laughs> sometimes we'll focus on a word, sometimes we'll focus on a phrase, sometimes we'll take a paragraph, uh, all depending on the length of time we need to unpack it and explain it and apply it. One of the things you find in the book of Ephesians is this, over and over again, this theme of identity in Jesus Christ, what it means to be in Christ and what that looks like. That's really important to Paul when he writes this book of Ephesians, that Christians know what it means to be in Christ, to to have your identity in him. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So I think it's worthy, it's a worthy time to, to to focus in on, on what we're looking at this morning to be a member of the household of God. What does it mean to be a member of the household of God? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, the scripture says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. When you talk to people about their identity, a lot of people find their identity in their work. I mean, I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher. That's a big part of who I am. A person is a teacher uh, or a, a person is a donut maker. What a person does, a person's work, is, is a big part of defining who they are. And even within jobs, there's even more specifics, like the person who's the science teacher. And they're probably really proud of that. That's a good thing. But we find our our identity in places like that, or we find our identity in our family. I mean, my growing up years, I was introduced as Wayne's son. I mean, that's just who I was. And in my case, I usually had to apologize for that. Don't hold that against me. (laughs) Uh, But we're identified by our family. Or when I go to my wife's Christmas party, I'm Jennifer's husband. You're identified by who your spouse is in a lot of these settings. But in this text, the identity for Christians is members of the household of God. Again, this is something Paul the Apostle really wants Christians to understand is your identity in Christ. If you read Ephesians 1 and 2, you're going to find over and over again this little phrase, in Christ. What it means to be in Christ. And Ephesians chapter 2 particularly focuses in on what you once were and what you now are. How at one time you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you've been raised through Jesus Christ. How in this very passage you were once aliens, you were strangers, but now you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. But one of the reasons I wanted to preach through the book of Ephesians and felt compelled to go through this book, even though chapter 1 is about the deepest chapter in all of the Bible, I was compelled to go through this book because I I think it's incredibly encouraging. It's very broad in its application. It applies to all Christians everywhere. And it's just so encouraging. And that's what we get from these passages that relate our identity to these metaphors like the household of God. It's meant to be encouraging to know you're a member of the household of God. That's what it is. It's a metaphor. 
that in the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, you, you find these metaphors to help explain the Christian life, or in this case, the church. And you, you keep in mind for the Ephesians, the idea of the church was a new idea, right? Christ will build his church. The idea of the, the church including Gentiles and Jews together, the church being all believers in Jesus Christ, this is new. So what Paul the Apostle does is he takes metaphors of something that's understood like being a member of a household and compares it to something new or less understood like the church. So in this passage, in this little phrase, it helps us understand what it means to be a Christian, to find our identity in Christ. Part of that is being a member of the household of God. Well, let's start with that phrase and and unpack that a bit as you work through Scripture because I was surprised this week to learn how common it is in the Old Testament to find this idea of the house of the Lord, the house of God. I didn't realize it was so common, but it's all through the Old Testament. This is a big idea in your Old Testament to essentially to enter into the, the household of God, the house of the Lord. You find it early on with Jacob. You remember when Jacob is wrestling with, with the angel. And he names the place Bethel. Well, Bethel in Hebrew means house of God. It's the house of God. Then whenever, whenever Israel comes out of Egypt in the Exodus, a big part of the book of Exodus are the instructions for building the tabernacle, this, this movable place where God would be worshipped. And, and the book of Exodus refers to this as the house of the Lord the house of the Lord. Then as you work through the rest of your Old Testament, you'll find in First and Second Samuel that the idea of the house of the Lord is essentially the place where God is worshipped. The place where God is worshipped. Then the temple becomes known as the house of the Lord, and that's because that is the place where God is worshipped. Let me just give you a couple of the, the more familiar places where you can find this language. Psalm 27.4 in the writings of David. This great example of, of the worshipper of God. David says in Psalm 27, 4, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David's heart's desire there is to dwell in the house of the Lord, notice, all the days of his life. And then David also relates this idea of the house of the Lord in the familiar psalm that you probably have memorized, Psalm 23 and verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So David wants to be in the house of God where God dwells, worshiping God all the days of his life. But then he's also looking forward to the day when he will be in the house of God, in the very dwelling place of God, forever. Forever. The house of God. Look in Ephesians 2 what follows this passage, verses 20 to 22, and you'll see this theme come out. Let me just read it all, starting in verse 19. Ephesians 2, 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being built together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. This idea now in Christ, in the church, of the people of God 
being the dwelling of God. The place where God is worshipped is the place where God's people gather together, which is the church. If you look in 1 Timothy chapter 3, essentially what you've got in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy is like a manual on the church. It's written to, to Timothy, a, a, a pastor in a church, and, and it's essentially, the, the book reads like a, a manual on here's what you do, Timothy, in the church. And look at this expression, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now look at what Paul, the Jew, the trained Pharisee, writes here. This guy knows the Old Testament. The household of God, which is the church of the living God. You are a member of the household of God. The place where God dwells among his people, with his people, now that place is the church. You're a member of the household of God. It's a, la it's a, it's a language of a household, of a family. That's the power of the metaphor. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be a member of this group of people, this place, these people where God dwells in them. Well, a couple things. First of all, it means that you have a new father. That if you look at the New Testament and, and how some of this fa family language is used and some of this relation to the household of God is used, you'll quickly pick up on the fact that there's an emphasis on God being your father. He's the owner of the house. It's his house. It's the Father's house. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, you're no longer a stranger and alien. You're a member of his house. And he's the Father. He's the owner of it. It's the Father's house. Jesus teaches this. So, so you know the Gospels all have some different emphases. They're all a little bit different. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are very similar in the fact that they're making the case that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. He fulfills the Old Testament, and you should believe in him. He proves himself by mighty works and miracles that he is God, a very God, and you should believe in him. He dies on the cross for our sins, is raised from the dead. But all the gospel writers have some different emphases. One of the things Matthew does more than any other gospel writer is he includes more of the direct teaching of Jesus than any other gospel writer. Matthew likes to be, probably because he's a tax collector, he likes facts. Evidently, he includes a lot of direct teaching. And the first big block of teaching in Matthew's gospel is what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, where Jesus gathers around himself his apostles, these men who he's going to pour himself into for three years and prepare and equip to lead the church and to lead his people. And the Sermon on the Mount is, is, an, is an early time of him teaching them. And it's a lot of teaching. It's three chapters in Matthew. I'm going to turn there. If you want to turn there, I want to show you some things. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Which, by the way, some, many people say the greatest sermon that's ever preached. It's hard to argue with that. But in this sermon, in this block of teaching, Jesus over and over again refers to God as their father. That they should address him as father. They should recognize God as Father. And you know what this means? 
This means that the way in which you live should be altered based on your relationship with your father. Again, this is a relational metaphor. You're a member of the household of God. That means something in your life. Jesus gets at this over and over again in more ways than I'm going to cover this morning throughout the Sermon on the Mount. This is just to show you early in his teaching, he wants his followers to know God is your father and that should affect the way that you live. Look at it in Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 44. Matthew 5 and verse 44. This is one of the more famous sayings in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to start in verse 43. But you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Here's how sons of the Father live. They love their enemies. That's how members of this household live. It continues, chapter 6 and verse 1. Here the teaching is going to, the way you live with God as your father is going to distinguish you from the religious hypocrites in the world. In that, this case, Matthew, the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Look at chapter 6, 6 through 9. This is a familiar one. Chapter 6, verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So you see that the father's a rewarder. He rewards his children. We're invited and encouraged and taught to approach God as father. It's a relational term. It's how I relate to God. I'm a member of his household. If you have a need, how do you go to your father and make an appeal to him? The analogy continues. The metaphor continues. Look at Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 26. It's another famous saying. But do you notice all these refer to God as Father? Matthew 6 and verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into bards, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And the answer is, of course you are. (laughs) God takes care of birds. He's going to clothe the grass. Don't you think he's going to take care of you? Of course he will. He's a providing father. He's a caring father. This is what it means to be part of his household. You have a father that sees. He knows what you do. You know, there's a lot of things that you do in faithfully serving the Lord. A lot of times things we would never have chosen to do on our own. Circumstances take place. We have to do this. We do these good works. We live out the faith. God sees and God rewards. We pray to him. We call out to him. We trust in his provision. Jesus reassures his Apostles here and the hard life that is going to be ahead of them, the Lord will provide for you. The Lord provides. One more in chapter 7. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. Matthew 7 and verse 7. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock 
and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The admonition there is seek him. Ask him. Pursue him. My goodness, you're a sinner, you're evil, and the child that you love comes to you seeking and pursuing. What do you do? You, you give. My goodness, how much more do you think God, who is good and perfect, will give to you what you need? Why? Because he's your father. This is what it means to be in the household of God. You're a member of his household. He is your father. He loves you. He cares for you. He provides for you. He rewards you. He's your father. I hope, I hope several of you had an experience like I had over Thanksgiving. Where Thanksgiving is a time where families come together. Many of us, if, if you're one of the younger people in the family, you maybe go to your parents' house. And there's your older parents there. And what is, what is that like? Well, again, I'm very blessed, thank God. And, and for me, it's like refuge. I get to go home to refuge. I get to go home to support. I get to go home to see family members I don't usually get to see. That's what a home should be like. That's what the father's house should be like, a place of rejuvenation, a place of acceptance, a place of refuge. Well, sadly in our world today, more and more, people don't have that experience because of the rampant depravity of the world. Our world, Gulfport, America is full of people who don't have that kind of an experience, who don't have a father. Or lots of people, again, as, as population increases and has increased, the number of awful worldly fathers has increased. Friends, this is part of the, the encouragement to know as a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a member of God's household. Because for the people who have a poor experience with an earthly father, there's a perfect heavenly father that will love you and accept you and bring you into his household through his son. That's the good news of the gospel, that our sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. And you know what? You get incredible benefits through Jesus Christ. One of them is you get a loving father. You know, this is why the, the language in the scripture of adoption is so appropriate and helpful. You get a family that you didn't have. You get a, a, a new father. You're brought into a, a family that previously wasn't yours, but now you're accepted, just like one of the other kids. We have a new father. Secondly, what does it mean to be a member of the household of God? It means you have a new family. This is a, a relational metaphor. You have a new father. You're a, a member of his household. But notice, verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members, plural, members of the household of God. Not only do you have a new father as being a member of his household, you have a new family. You think about the way the New Testament lays out our relationship to other Christians. 
I believe you'll find the most common designation for Christians in the New Testament is brothers. Brothers. This is the picture of what God's people look like in the Bible. Or one of the pictures. Brothers. Members of the household of God. We have the most important thing in common. We have the same father. And we came to him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we're brothers. Not because of any worldly reason. It's because of Jesus Christ and God's grace. We have a new family, which makes me ponder, do we really view one another in the church as brothers? Well, we should. If we're going to live out what the Bible says, we should truly view one another as brothers. This affectionate relationship for another person that you can't get away from. That's part of the power of this analogy in Scripture of Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, being brothers. Because we have the same father. And one of the interesting things about family is you can't escape them. Can you? You can't change who your brother is. By the way, you don't get to choose who your brother is either, do you? No. That's your brother. You're stuck with him. Praise God. Well, you... Transfer that to the church, the household of God, full of brothers. Well, we're stuck with one another, praise God. Speaks to how we treat one another, how we think of one another. We have a new family, we're members of the household of God. Look at some of the passages that speak to this. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. It was a good verse. We do good to all. It's how we live our Christian life. We're going to especially do good to those who are members of the household of faith. God's people. The church. We're going to do good to one another. Think of what, are, what are some ways that you can do good to someone within this church this season? There's a good way to do a good work. Think of someone that you know in this body. Probably it would be helpful to think of someone maybe you don't know so well. I know many of you, most of you in this room, I think you're amazing people, you're incredibly generous because God has transformed you by his spirit. Many of you have been very generous to me. Well, pick somebody out in this room that maybe you don't know as well or maybe you don't know at all. Try to do good to them. It's a good season to do that. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2 also speaks to this language of how we treat one another. 1 Timothy 5, 1-2, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters, in all purity. That's what the brotherhood looks like. That's, that's more specifics about how this household of God functions with one another. How you treat the older men? Well, you better be really careful rebuking them. Says here not to do it, but to encourage him. And to be encouraging older men. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers. Again, see what you get in the church? You get a bunch of mothers, praise God. And the younger women like sisters in all purity. Again, it, it encourages me that I have lots of little sisters to be treated with purity. But how we treat one another is important in this idea of members of the household of God. In fact, this is going to play out in the book of Ephesians. 
Essentially, what you have in Ephesians 1 through 3 is what God has done, making you who you are in Christ. And then chapters 4 through 6 are, okay, here's how you should live now as those who are in Christ. What God has done, you're in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6, here's how you should live. It's one of the amazing things about this book and one of the things that's so helpful. It's really deep in the first three chapters about salvation and the gospel and what it looks like to be in Christ. And then if you look, just look at chapter 4 and verse 1. I therefore as a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then it's going to come for the rest of the book. Here's how you live as a member of this household. Right? If you're a member of a household, the way you live represents your house. The way you live says something about your father. There is a reason that you live the way that you do. It's because of who your father is. It's because of what household you're a part of. It definitely affects our life. And certainly it specifically affects how we treat one another. Again, it's helpful to think of the church as brothers. All with a common father. And it especially relates to how we treat one another. Remember that passage where, amazingly, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified and he knows it. He's literally on the road to Jerusalem. And what are the twelve arguing about? This is just one of the most stunning parts of the gospel. What are they talking about? He's told them, we're going to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to suffer. They're going to curse me. They're going to crucify me. But I'll raise again. And what are they talking about on the very road on the way? They understand a few things. They know he's a king and that he's going to establish an eternal kingdom. But they're arguing about who's going to be greatest in that kingdom. Who's going to be greatest? And Jesus, amazing the the mercy of Jesus Christ to, to kindly be patient with and teach dense people. Aren't you glad for that? Unbelievable how dense I am. And Jesus is merciful and kind to continue to be merciful and kind. And he teaches them, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. And then he uses this example of the Gentiles. You know how the Gentiles, you know how the world treats one another? They're power hungry, they bite and devour one another, and essentially they rule over one another in a way that they put each other down. There's a lot of that in our world, isn't it? People putting each other down, particularly to get ahead. But Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. And you know why? It shall not be this way among you? Because you are all brothers. You're all brothers. All the church is made up of brothers. Another great encouragement in this uh, to me uh, is you don't have to be home alone. You have brothers. Lots of them. What an encouragement that is. My, I had a great experience growing up, friends. I'm so blessed by the Lord. But I just want to share with you, uh, again, I was blessed to have a good family life. But I had my family. But then I had what we called church family. That's language people use. Have you ever heard it? Church family. I had my family, like my mom and dad, my brother and sister, my cousins. But then I had my church family that I got to meet with every week. It's like I had two families, and it was just such a blessing. I learned so much from that church family. This is the way God has designed it. When you get saved, it's not just about you going to heaven. 
It's about you becoming part of a people. You become part of the people of God. You become a member of the household of God, the church. That's an amazing thing. And it's an encouraging thing. That you have brothers. And by the way, ladies, of course I mean you too. It's just the Bible calls you brothers. It doesn't mean anything by that. It's just the language, the way the language works. No slight at all on women, of course, your sisters. We have one another. That's one of the blessings and benefits of being saved. Membership in the household of God. So let's treat one another that way. Let's try to really live out and look at one another and perceive one another, each as members of the same house, the same father, and treat one another accordingly. We're about to have a time of fellowship. Let me invite you to come to that. Get to know some of the people in this room. You have brothers here if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, the way you receive these brothers, the way you receive these houses and lands is through Jesus Christ the Son. That's how you have access to the Father. It's through his Son that he sent. Because it's only his Son that he sent to come and die on the cross for our sins, to pay for our sins. He was raised from the dead. He's Lord for all. And Jesus taught, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this is an invitation for you to come to the Father. You come through the Son. That's how you come into this household. You come through Jesus Christ. Not on the basis of anything you've done. Not on the basis of who you are. Like you pay a certain due, you do a certain thing, then you're a member of a certain club. That's not how it works. You enter this family, this eternal family, this household, this kingdom, through trusting the Son to forgive you of your sins. Recognizing Him as Lord over all. Submitting to Him and living for Him. And you become part of His people. Yes, you're saved from your sins, and yes, thank God for that. What a blessing. But there is so much more. It's not just about our individual salvation. It's being made part of the people of God being made a member of the household of God, which is the church. And you come to that through Jesus Christ. So you should come to that today. I don't know why you would delay. You should repent of your sins, your sins which will ultimately hurt you and harm you in this life and condemn you eternally. You repent of your sins, no matter what they are, God will forgive you. Amazing thing that is. All of them forgiven forever, not held against you. That's the power of Jesus' blood and sacrifice. You repent of your sins and you trust Jesus to bring you to God. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to recognize the power of this metaphor, that we're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, to recognize you, Lord, as Father, to recognize other followers of Jesus Christ as brothers. Help us to treat one another accordingly. Help us to mind, God, how we treat each other. Help us, Lord, to be a people that that do seek to do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, Lord, help us to do good to one another. Help us not to, Lord, to speak badly of one another, but seek how we can do good to one another. And help us, God, to treat each other like members of the most important household of all, your house. And God, as we go through life, 
Help us, God, like David, to look forward to dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.